This is Jim Fry, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversations. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo thrilled this morning, December 9th, 2014, to be joined by Jim Fry, the man who managed the Royals to their first World Series in 1980. 76-78, you know the story. The Royals get to the ALCS and are extremely frustrated, heartbroken at the hands of the New York Yankees, and eventually Whitey Herzog is let go, and a main reason for that is the thought that perhaps this Jim Fry fella can beat the Yankees. He would, as fate would have it. But let's talk more about Jim Fry before we get that. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Jim Fry, a childhood friend of Don Zimmer. They were best friends growing up. He played 14 seasons in the minor leagues, won two batting titles, was a 302 lifetime hitter. But Jim Fry, with some bad luck and injuries, never made it to the big leagues. Retired as a player, Baltimore, talked him out of being a real estate agent. Hired him to uh, be a scout, do some minor league managing. Eventually, Earl Weaver noticed and called him up to Baltimore. Was a hitting coach in Baltimore, and and eventually, then the Royals plucked him, and that would start a career that also saw him win Manager of the Year for the Chicago Cubs in 1984, take them to the playoffs. He became the GM, won GM of the Year for the Cubs later on in 1989. So, quite the baseball career for Jim Fry, a guy with a lot of great stories, and, and there's kind of been an, an air of mystery surrounding him as well you know why was he let go in 1981 he had taken the royals to the world series the previous year and then all of a sudden was let go we're going to get the real reason for that we're going to get some answers on that we're going to get memories of george chasing 400 and and if fry would do anything different in that 80 world series and what it was like being there front and center at yankee stadium when the royals won that deciding game all that and so much more jim fry a comprehensive look at his awesome career in baseball he joins us on clubhouse conversation from his winter home in the Jacksonville, Florida area. Jim, how's everything going with you? I'm fine. I just got back from San Diego last night, late. Uh, I was out there for the uh, meetings, and uh, I was on one of the committees for uh, uh, voting the veterans player section in, and we met for uh, all day, when was it? Sunday, I guess, Saturday, Sunday, all day Sunday, and um, no one qualified. They need 75% to make it, and uh, none of them qualified. So it was a long trip, uh, nothing much accomplished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people think Oliva and Cott should be in. Were you, were you surprised that nobody you know, qualified this year? What are your thoughts on that? Well... You know, we're not supposed to talk too much about the voting, but but uh, there are a lot of guys that were were. Uh, we have 16 people voting. Everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has their own era of uh, when they were active in baseball, and uh, we got all ages, all the way from uh, uh, there was.
was one guy even older than me and uh, some youngsters who just quit playing. So, uh, you know, everybody's got a different perspective and a different, uh, I guess, memories of what they saw and how they feel about things. So it's it's a, a mixture of uh, old and, and new, and, uh, of course, everybody has their own personal opinion about things. Yeah. Well, now, speaking of baseball, did you enjoy watching the Royals and the World Series in 2014? I enjoyed it because uh, as a comparison to the teams that I had in 80 and 81, there was a lot of speed. We had we had great speed. We didn't have the pitching in 80 and 81 that they have now. Uh, but we had pitch, we had speed and defense, and we had some power. Uh, we had, we had a good offensive team. Our pitching staff wasn't quite as good as they have now. For sure, we didn't have the bullpen. <laughs> yeah, I don't think <laughs> I, almost no one's ever had the bullpen they have. <laughs> I was going to say I don't think anybody in baseball history has really had that bullpen, right? <laughs> right. Well, I want to go back and talk more about the Royals, but let's go back and, and kind of start from your beginning. So you went to Western Hills High School in Cincinnati, and you were high school teammates with Don Zimmer, who I know is a dear friend. So, I mean, you two growing up, you know, how close were you when you were coming up, you know, through high school, and what was he like? Well, Don Zimmer came from the uh, southern part of Cincinnati along the river, and I came from up in the northern western part out in the country, we went, there was only one big high school on the western side of Cincinnati in the 40s, which we both attended. And so we, we became good friends probably when we were 13 or 14 years old, somewhere in there. We played on some summer baseball teams together. Then we played on an American Legion team together. And then we played, of course, through high school. And we became very close. And uh, there was three of us, um, uh, Zimmer and a guy by the name of Glenn Sample, who also played, but he was a better football player. He went on to play college football. And uh, and I, and uh, we hung out. And, you know, we were very close for, gosh, I don't know, what is it, 65 years, I guess it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read a funny story that Don Zimmer told about how you got a, a nose broken against Walnut Hills and high school basketball. He says it was his fault. So can you tell that story? Well, yeah, they had a guy over there. He was kind of a hothead player, and um, we had a good team. I think we wound up winning a city um, uh, a change of times. I'll have to say we had four guys that were like, Don Zimmer and I, five foot eight, and a six foot one center, and we won the city championship. Well, I don't think any of the five of us would have been able to make a team in in today's game. But nevertheless, we went to Withrow to play one of our uh, uh, teams that was also a pretty good team, and they had this this guy, and somehow or another, Zimmer and he got into a little bit of a uh, squabble, and I saw this guy, as Don was turning away, I saw this guy pull his hand back to hit him, and I jumped in the way to protect Zimmer, and he hit me in the nose, and they, <laughs> <laughs> they, 
they had to take me off the court down to the to the dressing room. I was bleeding, and oh, it was all a big mess. So anyway, he got me pretty good, and Zimmer escaped cleanly. <laughs> yeah, I know Zimmer always said when you looked at your nose, you would think of him. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, so you signed with the Boston Braves then after high school, and you went to uh, you know Ohio State in the off season as well for three years. Now you had some great minor league seasons, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about 1953 there in Jacksonville. You played with the Jacksonville Braves, and your second baseman was a young Hank Aaron. What do you remember about him? Well, the first time I saw Hank Aaron was in spring training that year. We were. I'm not sure where. I think we might have been in Thomasville, Georgia, in spring training. They had an old World War II domiciliary, and they built some fields out in the pine trees. They put up big dirt piles out instead of building walls. And the fields were quite large, and I stood with my back to the batting cage. I was going to hit next, and I heard this smack which I, you know, there's a difference between a guy like Aaron and most of us. And I turned around and I said, who the heck is that? And they said his name's Henry Aaron. He was about 5'10". I doubt if he weighed much more than 160 or 65 pounds. And, of course, from that moment on, every time you watched Henry Aaron hit, uh, he was just in a different class than the rest of us. He he did everything easier and uh, and better, a lot better. And he had uh, quick wrists, and and the ball just jumped off his bat. And then we we came on to Jacksonville together and played that season. And he uh, he was clearly the best player in the league. He uh, I think he led the league in home runs and uh, RBIs probably, and probably batting average. I'm not sure. I'm sure he led it in batting average, and I think he led it in home runs. But, um, God, he was, a, he was a phenomenal offensive player. An interesting note is that he, he played second base, and he, he led the league also in errors. He, <laughs> he made about, I don't know, 60 errors or something. He made a ton of errors, so they thought they better put him in the outfield. He could run, he could throw. At that time, when he first went to right field, he threw the ball underhand back to the to the bases. <laughs> he had played the infield his whole life, and he had kind of a sidearm underhand throw. And it took him a year or so to get to where he'd come over the top and from the outfield. But he had a strong arm. He could have played center field. I always said if he'd have played uh, center field and played in New York, he'd have probably been, uh, you know, everybody would have thought he was another Willie Mays. But but he played right field. He was just a exceptional young player, no question about it. Well, you spent 14 seasons in the minor leagues, 1950 to 1963. You had a lot of success, too. So you had a career average of 302. You won two batting titles and had lots of success, but then you had a lot of injuries. You had some bad luck happen to you. I mean, were there some close calls where you just about made it to the major leagues, and, and how frustrating was that for you as a player trying to come up? That's uh, still frustrating. Yeah? <laughs> 50, 60 years later, it's still frustrating. I was, 
young player on the Triple A club in 1950, in the spring of 55, uh, playing Triple A. I was leading the uh, the uh, American Association in hitting, and I tore up my right ankle. And they had told me a couple of days before that I'd probably be going to uh, to uh, Milwaukee. I guess it was Milwaukee at that time. Um, that I'd be going to the big league club within a week or so. And uh, so it took, I don't know, I lost six weeks. or I didn't finish the season strong after sitting out six weeks. And then I went to winter ball, and uh, that winter I broke my knee. And so it took me almost a year and a half before I got going again. Then in 1957, I led the Texas League in hitting, and I was the most valuable player of that league. And the Cardinals bought my contract after the All-Star game, and and I think in June. But part of the deal was that the owner of the Tulsa Club said uh, he wanted to keep me on the team because I was leading the league in uh, everything but home runs and RBIs. And and uh, so by the end of that season, I, then I went to spring training. I made the the Cardinals team in 1958. Uh, Freddie Hutchinson was the manager, and he announced that they were sending um, Kurt Flood back to AAA, and Jim Fry was going to open the season and lead off. And the next morning I hurt my left shoulder, and I couldn't, um, I couldn't throw back to the infield. It took me almost a year and a half before I could throw the ball. And then by that time I'd gotten a little older, and Kurt Flood was established, and uh, you know there was no free agency, so so uh, that was the end of me. And I, I finished. Then I finished playing AAA ball until 1963. And then I decided to retire. I had a bad shoulder, I had a bad knee, a bad ankle, and I was tired of <laughs> tired of playing triple-A ball, so I retired and went to work for the Orioles as a scout. Yeah, I was going to say. So I also read that you were considering doing real estate, and then Harry Dalton calls you up and says, hey, you want to manage in Bluefield? So is, is that kind of how it happened? And, and what are your favorite memories of managing the Bluefield Orioles? Well, that's exactly what happened. I came out of, after the 63 baseball season. I went to a library and bought two real estate books. And a week later, I went to Columbus and um, passed the state real estate exam. I, had, I was in business. Uh, within 10 days of the, the end of the season, I was in business in real estate. And... and uh, you know, the exam wasn't quite as tough as it is now. I understand it's more difficult. But anyway, here I was trying to sell houses and list houses, and, and I did pretty well. However, excuse me, uh, Harry Dalton called around the, the end of December, I guess it was, and um, he asked me if I'd consider doing some scouting in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, and uh, Michigan, and 
run their Bluefield Rookie Club uh, in the summer from, I guess, the middle of June to the end of August, something like that. Anyway, I really liked the real estate business, and I was doing quite well at it, actually. He offered me $6,000 a year (laughs) to leave home in March for spring training and then do some scouting and then run the uh, rookie club. And uh, it was quite a decision. I, I really liked the real estate business. I thought I could do well at it. $6,000 $6,000 wasn't too attractive, <laughs> but uh, my wife said when we were in high school, all you ever said was when you, when uh, we grow up and after college you wanted to be a coach, you wanted to do some coaching or managing baseball or stay in it, and um, she said you might as well give it a try now while you're young. So off I went to Bluefield, well, I scouted and, and then I did the Bluefield thing, I did that for a couple of years, and then I scouted some more. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we made no money, uh, left home in the spring and came home in the fall, and uh, it was a different time. It was a different world then, and but we we didn't know any better, and we loved what we were doing, so that, that was that. Well, then you get uh, the, kind of the call-up to the big leagues then. So 1970 till 79, you were on Earl Weaver's staff, hitting coach, bullpen coach, first base coach, a variety of different roles. Uh, now, you guys won a World Series while you were there. You had three pennants as well. What are your favorite memories of your times in Baltimore? Well, my favorite memory, of course, was getting the job in the big leagues. I was a guy who spent all those years in the minor leagues, and I didn't really have a national name or any recognition for anything except I'd been a decent minor league hitter and and uh, I'd done some. Uh, I was doing some batting instruction in the minor leagues while I was scouting. And Earl Weaver asked me if well, Charlie Lau was the batting coach, and he left the Orioles to go to Oakland with Hank Bauer, and they needed a batting coach. And Earl asked me if I would do it, and I said yes. Well, Harry Dalton was the general manager, and he wanted me to come to to Baltimore to be an assistant in the farm department and the scouting department and eventually take over because the man doing it, Walter Shannon, was getting up in age at that time. And I made a choice that I'd rather coach on a big league team than go to the front office. And my first year we won the World Series, so that was a good choice. <laughs> I, I I didn't think of myself as a as a front office guy. I thought more of myself as a as a non field guy. So uh, that worked out. And Earl and I got along well. He was a great manager. We had real good teams. We, uh, as you said, we won five times in our division in uh, ten years. We went to the World Series three times. Uh, beat the Reds in 70, got beaten the seventh game in 71 and 79 by Pittsburgh. That was They were both painful losses. and uh, But it was a great time for me. And then, of course, Kansas City was, that honestly came out of the blue. I'd, I never thought I had the name or recognition 
to be even considered to manage a major league club. I was I was thrilled being a, a big league coach on a good team, which we had. And we went to the World Series in 79. And the first morning, John Sherholtz, who had worked in Baltimore, I was with him in Baltimore when he was just a young man out of college. And um, he said, let's have breakfast. So I said, sure, why not? So I went down to have breakfast. And we're having a nice breakfast and talking, reminiscing a little bit. And all of a sudden, Joe Burke, who actually was the general manager, John was kind of assistant to Joe Burke, he says, how would you like to manage our team? I thought he was offering me a triple-A job. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going back to the minor leagues. I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> he said, no, the big league club. I said, holy cow, are you kidding? He says, we want you to manage our big league team i said i'll take it <laughs> i didn't even ask him i didn't even ask him how much money so that was that was another surprise and a, and, and a piece of good fortune for me because i went to kansas city and of course i knew right away uh, even though we didn't win any games in spring training i think we lost 11 in a row or something and the fans were hollering, "We want Whitey" and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a tough month or so for me, but then we I knew we had a good team, and I knew once we got our pitching staff straightened out, everything was going to be fine. And we did have a good team. We had a lot of good players, and uh, we had speed and power and pretty good pitching staff. Not as quite as good as. Uh, as I would have liked in the bullpen, but uh, other than Quisenberry, uh, you know, we just had an ordinary staff. So, but we won 97 games and went to the World Series. So, another lucky thing for Jim Fry, and uh, that that was probably uh, of all the years in baseball. I guess that was the highlight of my career. I mean. That was a time when I really felt as if I was fortunate to be where I was. Yeah, you had a you had a tendency to always win in your first year somewhere. You know, Baltimore, Kansas City, Chicago. <laughs> it seemed like wherever you went that first year was really good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've had a lot of people say that to me. I I never really thought of it that way, but um well I knew we had a good team in Kansas City and I knew if, if we stayed healthy, which we were not healthy early. You know, we lost Porter in spring training, and then George got hurt early and missed 40 games or more. And um, we kind of struggled. We didn't struggle, but we, we weren't on firing in a way I thought we could. And then we got them back, and then, of course, from the middle on, we I knew we had the best team then. Uh, when I went to to uh, Baltimore, I, I can't say I had that much to do with with the Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore had a great team. We had we had great pitching, we had great defense, and we had a lot of power. You know, we had Frank and Brooks and Boog, and I mean, we had a great team in Baltimore. Also, the surprise, I think, for not only me but for many in baseball, 
my first year in Chicago, when I went to Chicago, they hadn't won since the middle of World War II, for yeah. crying out loud. <laughs> and uh, the first day I was in Chicago, they told me, uh, I was asking them, I was asking them about the most people they had ever drawn in, in Chicago. Because I had always been American League guy. I didn't really know that much about it. And the first answer was, well, after Labor Day, when the kids go back to school, if you come to the park late, you have to sit in the second row. So uh, the, they didn't, you know, they were drawing nothing. I mean, everybody now thinks that the Cubs always drew, but that's not true. The most they had ever drawn when I got there was a million three hundred and seventy thousand people. And I said to uh, the guy that was from the uh, Tribune, I can't think of his name right now, he, I said, uh, he says to me, how are we going to improve our, our uh, attendance? I said, well, I know one thing. If you win games, people will come. There's no question about that. And we've got to figure out how to win a few games and get people excited about Wrigley Field. Well, we went to, I think we went to two billion one that year. We won ninety six games with a team that wasn't was not figured to uh, to be a contender in spring training at least. And uh, we drove two million one, and then that was like Kansas City. I mean, that was a thrill going down the going down the stretch with that team. I knew we'd win in Kansas City. I wasn't so sure in Chicago, yeah. but we did. We uh, we kind of outlasted the Cardinals the last month, and um, and that was quite a thrill, also. Well, going back to uh, to KC, a lot of really cool things happened before the playoffs. So that was the year George was chasing 400. He was over 400 late in the year, and he hit 390. For you personally, how much fun was that watching him chase 400? Well, I thought he was going to do it, but. Um, I mean, he was on such a roll, and he was such a great hitter. Uh, he had a great personality and feeling for the game and understanding. Uh, uh, but the media and the fans got to him. They just, I mean, there was such a tension drawn every day, all day. Uh, he couldn't go to the park. I started to go to the park with he and Billy Connors, and we'd go out and play cards for a couple hours. Uh, we'd leave like 11, 12 o'clock early to go to the ballpark before the bus, and uh, we put a different name on the hotel list. And the, but the people just would not allow him to relax at all. It was just day and night, and it finally got to him. And uh, so finally one day I said to him, and we were in Minneapolis, I said, how about if we take a couple of days off, George? He said, oh, God, that, that, that's what it, I just love that. So this is another great memory. I said, now, you got to be available to pinch hit late if we need you. He said, I'll be ready. So we go in a game, and we're losing by a run or two. I can't remember exactly, but we're losing by a run or two in the eighth, and we get a couple on, and I said, I think the time has come, George, where and he walks up, and the first pitch he hit into the right field seat. <laughs> so, 
he came around, he jumped in the dugout, everybody was excited, and I said, you want to stay in and get another at-bat, George? He said, how am I going to top that? And he kept running right into the clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, George Brett was such a good player. I'll tell you another interesting thing. You know, I had the greatest respect for Whitey Herzog, but he played a little different game than I did. And they did a lot of running and bunning and all that stuff, which I did some of it, but not to the extent that Whitey had. And uh, so uh, I guess it was about the time that George was uh, just getting to around 400. I don't know if he'd quite made it yet. And uh, we're playing in Kansas City on a Sunday afternoon. Everybody's going crazy. And we get Man on first and second with no outs in the, I think it was in the ninth. It might have been the eighth. But anyway, it was a, it was a place where George had always butted, I guess, for Whitey. He he ran back from the on deck circle, and he acted like he was getting something out of the dugout. And he says to me, "You don't want me to bunt?" <laughs> I said, "George, I'm not bunting with the best hitter in America." Go up there and end the game. Let's go home. And he hit a double, and we went home. <laughs> so that was a that was a great highlight for me, and I think a great boost for him. Yeah, that's a great story. So you guys, you know, like you talked about, you win the AL West that year by 13 games. It was a complete runaway. That's the most in Royals history. But then, so going back before you to Whitey and everything, the Royals had lost three straight times to the Yankees from 76 to 78. So before the 80 ALCS, what did you tell the team? What message did you have for them? Well, the <laughs> to beat the Yankees was quite a quite a thing, you know. Uh, the uh, I'll tell you a little unique story. When I got hired out there, Ewing Kaufman said he always just called me Fry. He said, "Hey, Fry," he says, "You know why I'm hired, you?" I said, "No." He said, "Because Whitey couldn't beat the Yankees, and you've been over there at Baltimore." And you beat the Yankees a few times. Maybe you could figure out how to beat the Yankees. I said, well, you know, get on the bus and let's take a ride. We'll see what happens. So we end up, we actually got lucky. We won the first game pretty good. The second game, we got lucky in Kansas City with that relay play from George throughout the tie and run at home plate. And then uh, in the last game, in New York, uh, I brought Quisenberry in early because I didn't, I don't want to trust. Uh, I just didn't want to trust the other guys in that situation. And uh, he pitched. I don't know whether it was. A, I think I brought him in in the seventh, but I'm not. I don't remember exactly. Anyway, they get things going, and Cerrone hit a line shot to shortstop for a double play. And uh, but then they ended up going ahead a little bit, and here come George against uh, who was the big pitcher, big right hand relief Gossage. pitcher, Gossage, and he hit one almost out of sight up there in the right field bleachers to to win the game. So that that one event of beating the Yankees, I guess, uh, you know, that was that was something special for me. I mean. I was like a kid going to Disney World. It was it was very exciting. Yeah. Well, you guys came up short to the Phillies then in six games. Obviously, that was their first 
you know, World Championship. But I mean, does that sting even today, that World Series? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know I'm not the only guy to ever say it, but I'll tell you again, the 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 losses stay with you and hurt a lot more than the wins give you pleasure. You get a lot of pleasure out of winning, of course, but the losses stay with you forever. And, I, hell, I still, I'm 83 years old. I still wake up in the middle of the night thinking of the of some of the things that happened in those games. So we had... You know, we had the best relief pitcher in baseball at that time. Quisenberry had just come into his own. He saved 33 and won 11 that year because I would bring him in in the sometimes the seventh for one out or in the eighth often and, of course, mostly for the ninth. But we had three leads late and lost games. Uh, we lost the first two, and then we lost the fifth game with late-inning leads, which we never lost in this, during the season. I mean, I brought him in, and during the season, it was lights out, you know. He'd get a ground ball and a pop-up, and we'd go home. And they started bouncing balls over people's head and on the turf and, and bloops, uh, little bloops into center field and right field and, and it was just, uh, I've never gotten over it. You say, does it hurt? <laughs> it still hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there any one move that you would do different if you could do it all over again from that World Series? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I've often said when you lose, people always say I would never do anything differently. Well, I never felt that way. When you lose, you think of other things you might have done. You don't know what the consequence would be. Uh, it may have turned out better. It may have turned out worse. You don't. You just don't know what it would have been. But I've often thought of other things I might have done. I don't. Uh, I can't think of anything specific right now. But sure, you. You know, sometimes you second guess yourself. Every manager doesn't like to be second guessed. But hell. We second guess ourselves more than the media does. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, now a lot of Royals fans believe that the long layoff then, so you swept the Yankees, whereas the Astros or Phillies were able to just go right into that World Series because it went five games. You know, do you feel like that hurts you at all having the layoff before the series, or did that not really have any effect? No, on you? no, that's a silly thing. Christ, we had a four-run lead in the first game of the World Series, but you know, having George miss the first two games. We could have wiped them out. We had leads in the first two games in Philadelphia, and and we could have had big leads if George was in the lineup. I mean, we we got to their they weren't their top pitching guys. Carlton didn't pitch in those first two, and we scored early and we 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 had leads. I think we had a four run lead in the first game and probably a two or three run lead at one time in the second game we might have had a six or eight run lead if george had been around then he he came back and we won the the third and fourth games and we had a lead in the ninth inning in the in the fifth game with a little luck in the bullpen i mean i don't fault quisenberry it was just one of those series where things weren't going well they got key blue pits and grounders and all that stuff and 
<clears throat> with a little luck, we could have beat the Phillies four in a row. There's no question in my mind. But but the luck went their way instead of ours. Uh, you know, sometimes you think about, could I have pulled a pitcher earlier, or could I have done this or that or whatever. But but we had leads. We were right there. All we needed was a couple outs to win. Have you ever rewatched that World Series, or is it too painful to watch it? You know, the truth of the matter is I've only watched it one time, and I didn't enjoy it too much, so I don't watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. Well, two good things that happened. One more question about that. Willie Akins and Amos Otis, they were great. The Akins hit 400 with four home runs in that series, and Amos three home runs and 478. Talk about uh, those two players. Well, of course, uh Amos Otis had been a good player. I knew Amos Otis in the rookie league. He was playing third base in the Red Sox organization, and I tried to get the Orioles to get him as an infielder. I thought he was going to be a – I really recommended Amos Otis to play second base. Uh, I thought we should have acquired him when he was a teenager. And then he went to center field in Kansas City, and he became one of the better players in the league for – long time. I know he was a big guy for the Royals, and uh, when I got there, uh, he was a real good player. Um, uh, the only unfortunate thing with he and I was that I, uh, the second year, I wanted to make Willie Wilson a center fielder, and Amos didn't, he didn't take to that too kindly, and, and his play showed it, so after a couple of weeks, I had to put him back in center field. But he was a great player for a long time. Uh, I had a lot of respect for him. He probably doesn't think so since I tried to move him to left. But but I did have a lot of respect for him, and I still do. He he carried himself well, and he he was a good player. He was a real good offensive player and a real good defensive player, and he could run. He he could do a little bit of everything. He was a real good player. Uh, we had a lot of good ones. Willie Wilson was a great player. He could have been... If he'd have stayed clean, he'd have been one of the great players of that era. Uh, he was a great player for us. Uh, George, of course, is one of the best players uh, I saw in my years in the big leagues. And um, uh, Frank White was a good player. Uh, Willie Akins, he was a big guy that one of the scouts for the Baltimore club that I'd become friendly, friends with many years earlier told me about Willie Akins, and I didn't know anything about him except that I think he had started with the Angels, but I'm not positive about that. Anyway, we acquired Willie Akins to play first base. Here come this big fat guy, and I thought it was kind of a halfway joke at first, but he became a good player for us. He wasn't the greatest first baseman, but he could hit, and he could hit for power, and he he became a big, important guy on that team. Uh, Porter was a great player. Uh, Hurdle was a pretty good player. I mean, he wasn't a top player, but he was a decent player at that time. Uh, UL Washington, everybody said to me, UL Washington can't play in the big leagues. Front office said, we got all these reports from the minor leagues at every level. He'd never play in the big leagues. Well, I said, well, he's going to play for me for a month. We're going to find out. He ended up playing every day all season. He was a good player for us, could steal bases, had a good arm. 
I mean, I had a good team. There's no question about it. That was a good team. We should have won. Yeah. Well, then the next year the baseball strike happens, and that kind of screwed up that season. You guys were sitting 10-10 and 10 in first place the second half of that season, and then the Royals you know, let you go. Now, were you surprised by this, and what do you remember them telling you? Oh, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I wanted to my, – I mean, at that point in my career, I wanted to stay in Kansas City forever. And um, uh, I had – there were some things – I uh, don't know how to say this exactly, but there were things other than baseball that entered into that decision. And I had made some statements and uh, opinions to the front office about some of our players and things that were going on. And um, they didn't take to them too kindly. And as it turned out, uh, we got into a couple of little there was some verbal things said that then weren't taken too well, and the uh, owners decided that it was time to make a change. And uh, I broke my heart. It, it really did. It, it's still painful because in, in my mind, we had a great team, a great organization. It was a wonderful town. I, wa- I had a home there. I, hell, I, if it had been my choice, I'd have stayed there till I died. But didn't work out that way, and, and uh, I felt terrible about it. And, uh, I was lucky to get a reprieve by going to the Cubs, but but that was a bad time for a couple years trying to trying to get over that. The Kansas City thing was it ended up being more of a personal thing because a year after I left there, I received a letter from. Uh, I won't name who it is, but uh, from one of the the uh, Kansas City executives, you know, there were five guys caught on drugs. Three of them went to jail. And this letter was a long letter, long letter, going into detail about some of the things that we'd quarreled about. And the, 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 the uh, upshot of the whole letter was, they were acknowledging that I was right and they were wrong. The only problem was I was sitting on the bench with the Mets as with a team that was losing 100 <laughs> instead of going to the World Series with the Kansas City Royals. So that was a painful time for me, and I've never really quite gotten over it. Well, you mentioned being at the Mets, and then you get that, that Cubs job. How did that come about? How did you end up interviewing and get that Cubs job? You know, I don't really know. The uh, I was coaching for the for the Mets, and I had gone to the general manager the last day of the season, Frank Cashin. And you know, by this time I was getting along a little bit. And I I didn't really want to coach anymore, and um, I thought maybe I'd go get a big league scouting job or be an exact be an assistant to a general manager or whatever. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to scout anymore. I mean, I didn't want to coach anymore. So I went to Cashin and told him, and and uh, they said they wanted me to stay there as a batting coach and all that stuff. I said no, I'm going home. So he said, well, you got another job? I said no, I don't have another job, but I'll find one. And about a day or two later, uh, 
Dallas Green called me, and he said uh, he wanted to talk to me, and I flew flew in and, and uh, sat with, I guess, no, maybe, I forget exactly how that might have not. I might have the timing wrong. I think it was the last series we played after the final game there, something like that. I went to dinner with Dallas Green, and he offered me the job to manage. I said, you know, Christ, I don't know. I got to be the luckiest guy in America. Every time I got fired, I got a job, a little, little better job. One of my friends in Baltimore, and then when I got fired as the manager of the Cubs, I got the general manager's job. Yeah. One of my friends in, in Baltimore said, "You know, if I can get fired two more times, he'll be running for president of the United States. <laughs> he, every time he gets fired, he gets a better job." Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, well, you're you're kind of still a hero in Chicago. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, so 1984, you're the annual manager of the year. You take the Cubs to their first postseason since 1945, their first winning season since 72. But then, of course, the 84 NLCS, you guys win the first two. You go out and end up getting yeah. the you know the whole the whole curse of the Cubs comes in the the blowing the the lead. Yeah, if I could have if I could have won that year, I'd probably still be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that game five, you blow a three-run lead. The bullpen does. There's the bad error on defense. I mean, how fr- how painful was that series? Well, that, that that's like the, that's like the Philly uh, thing with the Kansas City. I mean, you never forget those things. Of uh, you know, do you, would you do anything different? Of course, I'd do a lot of things different in the San Diego thing. But we had that was another series that was unusual. We had a lead in the third game to wipe them out. We lost three leads in that game, and Harvey kept coming up getting base hits to beat us. And then uh, the next game we we had a chance, and then the final game uh, we're leading three to nothing in the sixth inning with Sutcliffe on the mound who hadn't lost a game since June. And all of a sudden he got wild. He walked a couple. They got a couple fly balls or whatever, they end up getting two runs. The next inning, he leads off with a walk. They bunt him over. There's a ground ball to to Durham, which is just a routine ground ball for a second out. We're still going to have a one-run lead if we get the third out. He The ball goes through his legs. And then, then the, I didn't pinch hit. I mean, I didn't put in another pitcher for um, – Gwynn because Garvey actually was their hot hitter at that time, the right-hand hitter coming up. And I thought I'd let uh, Sutcliffe stay to pitch to Garvey at worst. And uh, Gwynn hit a double, and I don't know what uh, Garvey hit another one. Anyway, would I do anything different? Yeah, of course I'd do something different. If I knew they were both going to get hits, I'd have gone to the bullpen. But <laughs> I didn't really know that at that time. I had a guy who hadn't lost in almost four months. And I thought, you know, where am I going to get a better guy? But it just didn't work out. So that's another painful thing that you live with. Yeah. Well, 1987 then. So the you know in between the GM and manager, you were doing radio for the Cubs, which I think is cool since I'm a radio guy. And then you know, so a guy that you didn't maybe directly work with on the broadcast, but I'm sure you knew very well, was Harry Carey. What kind of guy was Harry Carey? 
<laughs> I still have a lot of funny memories about it. Harry Carey was great. He he was a one-in-a-lifetime character. He was old by that time, but he still had a lot of energy, and he loved going to the ballpark. I always said I'd never met anybody that loved being themselves more than Harry Carey. Harry Carey absolutely loved being Harry Carey. And he had that personality that he played to the hilt, and he was great. He was really great. He had more energy and more enthusiasm for the game than anybody I'd ever met. I mean, he 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 just loved going to the park, and he loved loved doing what he could do. He was a real character. He he said he said he would say things that's uh, all been documented before, but. He said uh, one night, how could a guy from Mexico lose a ball in the sun? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he had all kind of sayings that nobody else could get away with, but, but he could get away with them. He, he, would, he would second guess. I mean, I, I never took him seriously because he was really kind of a fan, young fan at heart, but... He would second if you know if we lost, he'd come in and say, "Why the hell didn't you do this and all that stuff?" I mean, he was a real character, but I I liked him. I thought he was great. Well, your GM '89, you made some moves, and you know Don Zimmer came in and another division title. I mean, how much fun was that one being in the press box in '89? Well, that was good. You know, I'd quit smoking for several years. I was going <laughs> going down the street. We got to the last game. Uh, of course, having Zimmer coach there was he had coached third base for me, and so that was that was always a good time. We 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 got along great, but um, uh, I hadn't smoked. We were in the final game in Montreal. If we don't win this game, we got to go to St. Louis for three games, and that that never was easy. I mean, that's a that's a tough place to go in and beat them, and they had a good team, so. I said we got we got to win this game. I I start smoking again, <laughs> and the, the last two innings of that that final game in uh, in Montreal, and uh, we had a traveling secretary by the name of Peter Durso. And uh, the eighth inning, they got a couple on. I said, Peter, give me a cigarette. I need it. <laughs> so I start smoking again for a while. But that was a tough tough year. Zimmer did a great job with a team that really wasn't as good as the Cardinals. Uh, we had, I'd say we had decent pitching, and and we had a couple young players by the name of Walton and Smith that, that had pretty good years for us. Uh, it was a struggle. Uh, Williams, the big left-hand pitcher, he, uh, he scared you to death. He, you know, he couldn't get the last out until he got the tying run on second base. So <laughs> he scared you to death. And um, uh, But it was a great time. I mean, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was a big deal winning that, that year. 89 was a big deal. And so, um, I, you know, I, be, I was lucky. I became uh, general manager of the year. <laughs> so I, had the, I was manager of the year, and I was general manager of the year. And uh, had a couple minor league things. So, all in all, it was good. Yeah. Well, 91 is your last year as GM, and then you kind of retired 
uh, for 18 years. And how I understand that you did some work with the Somerset Patriots in 2010. What did you do there, and how long did that go for? Well, it was soon after, uh, you know, one of the things that was misrepresented, uh, not by the media, but by the Tribune, actually, was that they replaced me uh, with Larry Himes. I had actually told them I was going to retire, and they offered me a three-year contract extension for more money and all kind of bonus things and everything, and I rejected that. And then that's when they got kind of pissed off at me and and uh, said, well, then we'll bring in Himes. So that that's how that went. But I was going to retire. I had already announced to everybody I was going home. So uh, I had made friends with this family in, in uh, New Jersey over the years, and uh, the son of my friend, uh, wanted to buy a minor league uh, team, and they were talking about forming a league which they called the Atlantic uh, League. It was an independent baseball league. They were starting to form that, and he asked me to represent uh, his franchise, uh, represent him, actually. And I went to the meetings, the first meetings, uh, there were, Buddy Harrelson was there, and I, I can't remember exactly some of the other people. There were five or six of us, and we met several times over a year, a year, maybe two years, and we drew up the idea and the plans and organization of an independent baseball league there, and and so they, you know, I became what they call the, uh, vice chairman of the Somerset Patriots, which means you don't do anything. <laughs> you go to the ballpark and say hi to everybody. <laughs> so that's about all I've done over the years. That's great. Well, last three questions for you. Um, when you think back to Kansas City right now, what kind of memories and emotions do you have about Kansas City? Well, uh, just what I said a half hour ago. I mean, hell, I've I'm still disappointed that that didn't work out. You know, the Chicago thing was great for me, and I got a I got a big job in the front office, which I never I never really went after. Uh, worked out okay. We won one time. Uh, I made some money there. Uh, but all in all, if you could turn the the the, the thing back. Uh, I would have probably preferred. I, I just love being the manager and being in Kansas City, and I guess I'll, I guess I'll go to my grave feeling that way. I, I feel I still feel bad about the way things turned out that there, and I wish it had gone another way. Do you stay in touch with anyone back here, and have you been back to Kansas City at all in, in the last ten, twenty years? I've never been back to Kansas City. Um, I played golf with George down in the Bahamas. We were both in a tournament down there uh, probably, I don't know, eight or ten years ago now. I forget exactly. Um, played one afternoon with him. Uh, I've seen Sherholtz a few times, spoke to him. He wrote me a beautiful letter 
uh, Willie Aikens, when he came out of prison, did a, I think he did a book in which he said Jim Fry was the only guy that tried to keep me straight. Uh, uh, no, I haven't. I, I, I have spoken, I have spoken to Willie Wilson a couple times, but it's been a long time since. Willie Wilson, uh, was another guy I tried to help, but it was futile. <laughs> At that time, he was just a young player who, you know, he was on top of the world in his own mind. But anyway, he said some nice things that I had tried to help him also. But uh, no, time goes on. Everybody has their own way to go, you know. And and you, all you have is, uh, like Gene Sears and the great golfer said one time, and I thought it was, beautiful if you stay in sports a long time you end up with a lot of awards and you end up with some trophies and you end up with some money and you give away the trophies you spend the money and all you have left is memories well i have some great memories they'll never take them away no they won't they won't last thing for you what would you like to say uh, to royals fans listening right now well, what I'd like to say is they ought to be very proud, as I'm sure they are, and, and uh, with a little luck, maybe they can do it again uh, next year. I mean, this coming year, uh, they've got the makings for a good team. They lost Shields, I understand, the pitcher, uh, which uh, it's hard to measure how good or how much of an impact that guy had. He probably had a great impact on not only his own record but on some of the other pitchers. Um uh, I don't know what they're going to do if they're going to do anything in free agency, but but they got a great young uh, great young club and they got a absolutely record breaking bullpen. My God, if you can get a lead in the sixth, you got a pretty good shot at going home a winner. So they got a chance to do it again. I guess they need a little help, but but uh, I'll be watching. Yeah, well, I want to thank you on behalf of, of Royals Nation for all that you gave to the to the organization and for taking us to our first World Series and you know for you know as a as a man trying to do what was best and what you thought was best for helping the team and and all that. So thanks so much for representing the Royals in a great way and and for all the memories and you know we we really appreciate it. And I thank you for calling me. Of course, ma'am. Of course. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.